0: Just to begin, have you ever noticed how different leaders bring different things to the table? Different personal aspects and strengths, characteristics. I mean, everyone has different styles. Everyone has different strengths. One person's leadership abilities in one area might not be any greater than another leader's in a different area. But sometimes it's the particular times, the circumstances of the times that makes a particular leader shine. And uh, you just think about some of our presidents here in our nation, for example, how different they are from one another. Uh, You take Donald Trump, for example. He he was a businessman at heart, and he governed like a businessman. Uh, Barack Obama was a community organizer and a professor at heart, and he governed that way. You can go all the way back through every single one of our presidents and and, uh, look at how uniquely designed they were and how differently they led uh, you go all the way back to George Washington, in my estimation, our greatest president. And even his very stature, he stood ahead above everyone else. He was about six foot three. And at that time, uh, men were not quite that tall. Uh, his stature, his commanding uh, personality, and most importantly, his impeccable character undoubtedly made him the perfect president to lead this new republic. You know, at different times throughout history, God raises up just the right kind of leader to accomplish what he wants accomplished, to carry out his purposes. And so, if God wants a nation to flourish, if God wants a nation to prosper, he will give that nation a leader who can accomplish that. And on the flip side, if God wants to humble a nation, if God wants to hinder a nation, or even make a nation fall, God will give that nation a leader who's who is flawed morally, or has poor leadership skills, or maybe just is essentially incompetent to fulfill the task given to him. And so, what's true of our presidents is true of uh, leaders in any arena of life, in any type of uh, influencer. In life. And, and uh, so, with that in, in the back of your mind, let me just uh, remind you that we're in the middle of a study, a multi week study called Rebuilding Life Tools from Ezra and Nehemiah. And here's where we left off in the book of Ezra God's people, the Israelites, had been captured, taken off to a foreign land, and then had been finally, after many years, restored to their land they had returned many of them not all of them but many of them had returned from being captive in a foreign nation and the ancient ancient empire of persia ruled the land and it was their kings that allowed the israelites to return to the holy land to begin rebuilding the temple of god and this is essentially what happens in ezra chapters one through six Well today we are in Ezra chapter 7 and I invite you if you have access to a Bible to turn in the Old Testament to Ezra chapter 7 and uh, we'll read this in just a moment. Here's what you need to know. About 60 years have passed between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. By this time the former Persian king, Darius, has been succeeded by a guy named King Xerxes. And if you watch certain Hollywood movies, you'll learn a little bit about Xerxes because he was most famous for failing to invade Greece. And, uh, and I'm certain that the Hollywood movies do an accurate job portraying history. Um, well, Xerxes, he lasted all oh, about two decades, and he was succeeded by a guy named King Artaxerxes, and he lasted for a long time, about 40 years or so. And King Artaxerxes is the king that we read about in Ezra chapter 7. So here's what we'll do today. I'm going to read the entirety of Ezra chapter 7. And I'm going to make just a few helpful comments along the way so that it all makes sense. And then we'll go back and we'll focus on one particular aspect of... Uh, What God, I think, is speaking to our hearts about today. So in Ezra chapter 7, here's what we read. And by the way, know this as well, that at this time in Ezra chapter 7, the man Ezra himself is finally on the scene. Okay? So keep that in mind. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. After these events, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, now here, here we have a little aside. In case you don't know which Ezra it is, we're going to explain which Ezra it is. And you might say, well, I only know of one Ezra. It has to be that Ezra. And you're right. It is that Ezra that you you know who it is. But in case you're into Hebrew genealogies, let me explain exactly which Ezra this is. Verse 2, or verse 1, no, verse 2 actually says, Sariah's son, Azariah's son, Hilkiah's son, Shalom's son, Zadok's son, Ahitub's son, Amariah's son, Azariah's son, Mariath's son, Zerahiah's son, Uzziah's son, Bukai's son, Abishua's son, Phinehas' son, Eliezer's son, the chief priest Aaron's son. Oh, it's that Ezra. Okay, now you know. So, what Ezra has done in explaining who he is, is he's just run back the family tree all the way to Aaron the brother of Moses. Okay? And so he comes, as we might say out here in West Texas, from good stock. All right? So, that Ezra, verse 6, came up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he requested because... The hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Verse 8. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month since... The gracious hand of his God was on him. Verse 10. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is the text of the letter King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest and scribe, an expert in matters of the Lord's commands and statutes for Israel. Here's the letter. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, an expert in the law of the God of the heavens. Greetings. Now in verse 13, here's what the king is going to do. The king is going to allow any Israelites who want to, to go back home to Jerusalem and to Judea in that area. Verse 13. Artaxerxes says, I issue a decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including their priests and Levites, who want to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. You are sent by the king and his seven counselors to evaluate Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your possession. Now in verses 15 through 20, they're going to talk about money. How is this expedition going to be funded how is the worship of God going to continue once they're in Jerusalem? It's going to be two things, basically. Number one, taxes are going to pay for it. That's something we don't typically do here in America, where taxes pay for the church. But number two, number two there will also be free will offerings. So let's just read about that. Verse 15. Artaxerxes writes in the letter... You are also to bring the silver and gold the king and his counselors have willingly given to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and all the silver and gold you receive throughout the province of Babylon, together with the free will offerings given by the people and the priests to the house of their God in Jerusalem. Then you are to be diligent to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs, along with their grain and drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. You may do whatever seems best to you and your brothers with the rest of the silver and gold according to the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles given to you for the service of the house of your God. You may use the royal treasury to pay for anything else needed for the house of your God. I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasures in the region west of the Euphrates River. Whatever Ezra the priest, an expert in the law of the God of the heavens, asks of you, must be provided in full, up to 7,500 pounds of silver, 500 bushels of wheat, 550 gallons of wine, 550 gallons of oil, and salt without limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of the heavens must be done diligently for the house of the God of the heavens, so that wrath will not fall on the realm of the king and his sons. Be advised that you do not have authority to impose tribute, duty, and land tax on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, temple servants, or any other servants of this house of God. Verse 25, Artaxerxes writes, And you, Ezra, according to God's wisdom that you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to judge all the people in the region west of the Euphrates, who know the laws of your God, and to teach anyone who does not know them. Anyone who does not keep the law of your God and the law of the king, let the appropriate judgment be executed against him, whether death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. And that ends the letter. Ezra, who's writing this, adds this in verse 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officers. So I took courage because I was strengthened by the hand of the Lord my God, and I gathered Israelite leaders to return with me. This man, Ezra, was a very important man in Jewish history. Ancient Jewish tradition calls him a second Moses. Ancient Jewish tradition says that he created the synagogue system. You might remember reading about that in the New Testament, where Jewish people would go to different synagogues. and many times uh, they would not have the ability to travel all the way to Jerusalem and worship the God there at the temple, worship God there at the temple. So they would worship in local synagogues, and it was said that Ezra was the one that created that synagogue system of worship. Tradition says that Ezra was the one who played a a pivotal role in the formation of the Old Testament canon. In other words, what books belonged and what books did not belong. Tradition says that Ezra himself wrote the book of Chronicles, 1st and Chronicles we call it, wrote the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and wrote the book of Esther. But here's the one thing that we know for certain about Ezra. Whether or not all of those ancient Jewish traditions are Completely accurate. We know one thing for certain about Ezra. And this is the one thing that can absolutely change your life. If you make it true about yourself. Ezra loved God's word. He loved God's word. Look at verses 9 and 10. Here's what we read. The gracious hand of his God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. What a powerful couple of verses there. The very first word of verse 10 is the word now. And that word now can be translated because. Question. Why Did God's hand rest upon Ezra? Have you ever come across those people that it just seems like God has smiled on them? Perhaps God has. Perhaps it's just your perception and you don't really know what's going on in their life. But here we have a definitive statement that the hand of the Lord rested Upon Ezra. Why? Because Ezra prepared his heart. He dedicated himself to be about the word of God. He decided that he would make the word of God central to his life. It wasn't simply a book or in his day a scroll to be put on the shelf somewhere but it was something to be adored, something to be consumed, something to be read, something to be lived by, something to be taught to other people. That, that phrase, determ-, he determined in his heart, that signifies a wholehearted commitment of yourself to something. And there was one thing that Ezra was totally committed to, and it was the Word of God. This is the key to Ezra's success. He committed to doing everything according to God's Word. Everything according to God's Word. And I would encourage you to make that your commitment. That there would not be a thing that you do that is just willy-nilly or just for, for, for whatever sake, but rather... You make a determination in in your heart to do all things according to the Word of God. Listen very carefully. If you commit yourself to this, completely devoted to living your life according to the Word of God, it does not mean that all of your problems will go away. Having the hand of God upon you does not mean that Ezra or you have all of your problems go away. You can look at the man Job in the Old Testament. He's a reminder that trials and difficulties still come to the godly. We can look at one another's lives and we can see very godly people, even in this very room, who have gone through various trials. And we know that trials and difficulties, challenges, come to the godly. But you also need to remember the end of the story of Job. Because not only at the end did God restore all things that Job lost, but he gave Job twice as much. And so when you devote yourself completely to God, when you determine in your heart to do all things according to God's word, you have this promise, I believe, that God's hand will be with you. He will, his hand will rest upon you in the good times and in the bad. Sometimes God's hand will sustain you through the trials of life like Job. But it's been my experience that most of the time, the invisible hand of God orchestrates the circumstances in your life in such a way that blessings simply fall into place. I'll give you an example. This is a very minor thing for God. Something impossible for me, but it's a very minor thing for God. But God did it, and you're a witness to it today. The sermon today is about the centrality of the Word of God, which is the Bible, To the life of a believer that is completely devoted to Him. Now listen, every one of my sermons—they're from God's Word—but the topic is not always the Word of God. Sometimes the topic is the person of Jesus, or how to have a good marriage, or or the difference between you know having a a biblical understanding of manhood and an unbiblical understanding of manhood. Or it's about having hope for the future. The topic might be about anything that the Word of God discusses. But this sermon is not only from God's Word, but it is about God's Word. Do you think that it is simply coincidental that this Sunday, a representative from the Gideons is here to give us an, an opportunity to partner with them in the dissemination of God's Word? It is not circumstantial. It is not happenstance. It's not coincidental. I did not create this sermon because the Gideons were coming. In fact, my sermon schedule was already set when we scheduled a Gideon presentation. And I see this as something that the hand of God does in my ministry, in my life, on a fairly regular basis. I'll give you another example. I can't tell you how many times... I've had our small group teachers, our Sunday school teachers, tell me that my sermon fit perfectly with the lesson that they taught in Sunday school. I'll tell you right now. I do not pay any attention to the Sunday school curriculum when it comes to preparing my sermons. Okay, that's between me and the Lord. I go to the Lord for that. I don't know what the Sunday school teachers are teaching. In fact, we have different Sunday school teachers that are teaching different curriculums. I have no idea, even today, what was taught in your Sunday school class. But there are times, and it happens more often than you'd imagine, that what I say in church fits perfectly with what Sunday school teachers teach their class. And when that happens, I believe that it is because the Spirit of God is making a very important point to somebody that he wants to drive home. I never know what the Spirit of God is doing in someone else's life unless that person tells me afterwards. This is a part of God's hand being in our church. He is affecting our lives for the better. He's making us into the image of Christ. Listen, if you want the gracious hand of God upon you, you need to determine in your heart to make God's Word central to your life. And let me add this, because I think this is very important. I see see an epidemic of what I'm about to talk about in American Christianity. There is a difference between the Christian who is devoted to God apart from God's Word and the Christian who is devoted to God through God's Word. There is a growing number of Christians who claim to be devoted to God and yet the amount of time and energy that they actually spend investing themselves in the Word of God is next to nothing. There are people that claim to love God But they completely disregard the love letter that God has given us. They completely disregard the primary way God speaks to us. It is through the Bible. It is through His Word. Now, some people will say things like, Well, I listen to what God says through the Spirit. Listen to me. If you are not grounded in the Word of God... You have no way of knowing whether that spirit is the Holy Spirit or some other spirit. If you think that the devil can't fool you, you don't know his schemes and his ways. He appears as an angel of light. You better get into God's Word. You need to be about the Word of God. You see, a Spirit-filled Christian is a Bible-studying, Bible-obeying, and Bible-teaching Christian. Why? Because that person knows that the Spirit of God will never tell you something that contradicts what the Spirit of God has said directly in the Word of God. The gracious hand of God was on Ezra because Ezra had determined in his heart to do three things with God's word. First, Ezra was determined to study God's word. Look at verse 10. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord. Listen to me. Studying God's Word is not a chore. We're not talking about calculus here. Okay? We're not talking about trying to learn Chinese. We're not talking about trying to learn something that is of no tangible benefit to you. We're talking about studying the Word of God. And it is not a chore, it is a delight. For the person who has devoted himself or herself to the Word of God, studying God's Word is a joy. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. It says, His delight is in the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on God's Word day and night. Let me ask you a question. Is God's Word precious to you? Do you read it? Do you listen to it being read? Is the Bible meaningful to you? As meaningful as a love letter received by a soldier who's stationed in a foreign land who needs a reminder of his loved one's desire for him. Is the Bible as precious to you as a map pointing the way to buried treasure? Are you as eager to read the Bible as a wise sage discovering a manuscript that reveals the mysteries of life? This is the Word of God. God's Word is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It is more valuable than all the gold in Arabia. It's the very Word of God. I take this Bible, this very Bible, every Sunday And I close it, and I put it in the box that it came in, in my office, and I close the box. Because this is the Bible that I preach from. This Bible here. It is precious to me. I can't tell you how many Bibles I have. I don't even know. But this Bible is the one that I preach from. It is precious to me. The gifts that we gave our high school graduates were Bibles because there's nothing more important than the Word of God to the person who is devoted to it. How dare we simply read a few verses from the Bible whenever the mood hits us? That would be like a parched man dying of thirst just wanting a teaspoon of water. That's unthinkable, unthinkable. The Word of God is the very food for our spirit. It provides refreshment for our minds. When Jesus was tempted out in the the wilderness, he was tempted three times, and every time he responded by quoting the Word of God, I submit to you that Jesus quoted the Word of God Not because he's the son of God and he simply had all that knowledge already in his brain. I submit to you that Jesus had spent three decades of his life studying the word of God. Going to the synagogue. Listening to the rabbis. At age 12, teaching the rabbis. Jesus devoted himself to the scriptures. And that is why he knew the answer to the temptation. When the temptation came. If we say we want to follow Jesus, we don't have an out and say, well, Jesus is a special case because he's the son of God. I'm not the son of God, and so therefore I get an out. No. Jesus was a man just like us. And he devoted himself to reading and understanding the very word of God. When we study the Word of God, not only do we get an understanding of the deep things of life, not only do we get an understanding, a better understanding of God's nature Himself, but we get direction for how to live our lives. Let me ask you, is there a question that you face today? You can find the answer in the Word of God. It is there because God's Word is totally sufficient for life and faith. Should you stay at your current job or leave for another job? Read the Proverbs and gain the wisdom of God, and you'll know what to do. Is this person the right person for me that I should spend the rest of my life with this person? Read what Galatians says about the fruit of the Spirit, and you'll know whether that person is right. How should I raise my kids? What kind of parent should I be? Read 1 Thessalonians to see how how Paul related to God's people as a parent. How he talks about how he took them in as, as a mother. How he treated them as a father. The Word of God has the answers to everything that you face. It's just that we don't know it. We don't read it. We have the Word of God on our apps. We have the Word of God on CD that we can listen to. We have the Word of God in book form and every other type of form. And yet, at no point before in the history of our country have Christians been so blissfully ignorant of the Word of God. We have no excuse. We must be people that study the Word of God. Christian, listen. Listen. The reason you make unwise decisions is because you do not seek out the wisdom of the one who has already provided you with the answers in his word. At one point, after Jesus had been resurrected from the grave, he met with his disciples in the upper room. And this is how Luke, at the end of his gospel, describes how the meeting went. He summarizes it this way. Listen carefully. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Do you get that? He wanted His followers after He had gone, after He had ascended to heaven. He wanted His followers To be people that study the book. Understand the scriptures. We must study God's word. The second thing Ezra did. He was determined to obey God's word. Verse 10 again says. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord. Obey it. It is not enough. To read God's word and then just put it aside. You must read it with this attitude, Lord, whatever your word says, I will do it. That should be your prayer before you open the book. Whatever your word says, Lord. Whatever your word tells me to do, I will do it. Why? Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. The Bible illumines the dark pathways of life so that you don't stumble. But it only works this way if you're prepared to do it. If your attitude is, "All right, I don't want to see what this what this Bible says about this and that and the other," and then I'm, I'm gonna, I'm going to decide later whether I'm going to do it or not. Who made you judge over God's word? No. God's word is judge over you. When you come to the word of God, you must be willing to obey it. Then it becomes a light for your path. What kind of fool would walk down an otherwise completely dark path with a flashlight in hand and then refuse to turn it on? There's a reason, people, who have serious visual impairments use what's called a white cane to see what's in front of them or or they use what's called a seeing eye dog to guide them or they hold someone else's arm to walk around. Why do they do that? So they don't stumble. So they don't fall. So they don't hurt themselves. You see, but without the word of God, you and I are blindly rummaging through life. God has provided us a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, but how many of us refuse to use it? Ezra did a third thing. Not only did he determine in his heart to study God's word and to do God's word, But he determined in his heart to teach God's Word. Sometimes I have a hard time understanding why it is so hard to find teachers to teach the Bible. And if I were to ask you to respond to this question, and I will not ask you to do this. Because I don't want anyone here to feel embarrassed. My goal is not to embarrass anyone. Step on your toes, that's a different thing. But embarrass you? No, I won't do that. But here's a question that I think if I were to ask and everyone had truth serum and uh, you responded honestly, the vast majority of you would say no to the question. So do not answer this question out loud. Here's the question Has God made you a teacher of His word? I believe the vast majority of the people in this room would be like the vast majority of Christians in, in America. And you'd say, no, I'm, I'm not a teacher of God's Word. You know, most of you, if asked, for, if asked to explain, you'd say something like, well, no, no, I, I'm not gifted like that. I don't have the gift of teaching. Or you'd say, well, I, no, I, I, I don't like public speaking. You know, I, I can't really get up in front of a group or anything like that. Or you might just say, I, I'm not qualified to teach God's Word. But I want you to listen to the perspective of Jesus On whether or not you are a teacher of God's word. Okay? In the passage we call the Great Commission. You may have heard of this. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them. To observe everything I have commanded you. And remember I'm with you always to the end of the age. Got a question for you. Does the Great Commission apply to you? Or is it just up left up to the preachers up on stage? You know it applies to you. Or well, if it only applies to the preachers, then at the end, Jesus makes the promise, I'm with you always. That, does that only apply to the preachers? He's only with the preachers? No, come on. We know it applies to all of us. Jesus. If it applies to all of us, then Jesus said that you are to go, you are to make disciples, you are to baptize, and you are to teach. Here's Jesus' plan to reach the world with the gospel. Every one of his followers has some people to go to, every one of his followers. Have some people to share him with. Have some people to baptize. And have some people to teach. But somehow over the years, church leaders have done a disservice to you by allowing you to falsely believe that you're not a teacher. You are. Jesus says so. That settles it. No more discussion. Not up for a vote. Don't need to have a business meeting about it. Jesus made you, if you're a follower of his, he made you a teacher of others. And I don't know if the people in your life that you're supposed to teach God's word to are in the church, in a Sunday school class, or some other formal setting, or or whether they're outside the church, I don't know. But I do know one thing, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an audience that needs to hear you teach them God's word. It's that simple. I'll say amen to myself. Amen. Thank you. All I'm asking you to do today is one thing, church, one thing. I just want you to love God's Word. Love God's Word. God was very intentional in giving us His Word. It took over 1,500 years for it all to be written down the very first time. And we are blessed enough to be able to read it, to make it a part of our lives. You know, there are congregations who speak languages that uh, are very, 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 very foreign to us. Small congregations in small parts of the world where people have become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and they don't yet have the Word of God translated in their language. And so when the translators translate a chapter of God's Word in their language, the church comes around and they are so eager to hear that one chapter from God's Word because they've been desiring it for years and for decades. And how many of us? Take our 14 copies of the Bible and just shove them up on the shelf and never read it. We're so blessed. We need to love God's Word so much. So much that we study it. Love God's Word so much that we obey it. And love God's Word so much that we can't help but teach it to others.